during the talk, if you want to sit uh, more comfortably on the cushion on the floor, please feel free to do so. If you want to sit on a chair, please feel free to do so. So it's as you want, and also as the space you have in front of you. So tonight, I would like to look basically at the basic building blocks of uh, meditation. So we talk about meditation in daily life. But looking, because often we have such an idea about meditation is this technique or that technique. Meditation is mindfulness of the breath, meditation is scanning of the body, meditation is just sitting, meditation is just noting. I mean, there are many different types of uh, meditation, many different types of Buddhist meditation. So in a way, you have what I would call many different techniques. And then us during this week will offer, tomorrow uh, I will offer listening meditation, then we will offer looking at feeling tones or rejoicing, loving kindness. So you have different techniques. But I think what is important is to see that before you have different techniques, actually you have two main components of meditation. And then the question of meditation in daily life is how can I cultivate these two components and also how can I, in a way, use them within myself. So the two components are, in terms of the traditional language, samatha and vipassana. And then each term can be translated, look at in different ways. So the first one refers to generally is translated as concentration. Personally, I would rather use the term anchoring or focusing. Because often when we use this term, concentration, we have a tendency to associate it with when we were young, we were told to concentrate. And then when we were told to concentrate, we were told to narrow and generally to tense up. And so, this is, in a way, the last thing you want to do is, as you sit meditation, I must concentrate on the breath. I must concentrate on the body. You really don't want to tense around the breath or the body. So I think we, we have to look at this idea of uh, what, what does it mean? How does it resonate within us, this term concentration? And that's why, personally, I prefer to look at it more in terms of anchoring. So when we use the breath, the body, the sounds, loving kindness, feeling tones, we're using this in a way to anchor in this experience. Because often we feel ourselves a little distracted, a little lost in amplification or whatever it might be. And so this is anchoring. And how does it work, this anchoring? It's a bit like a, the anchor of a boat. So you have a boat is anchored, but what does, it doesn't mean it doesn't move. It just means it doesn't move too far so that it doesn't get lost at sea. So it moves, but within a certain circumference, within a certain area. <coughs> so instead of thinking of concentration, I must not have any thought, or etc. 
more than yes we will have thought feeling sensation we'll hear sound but because of the anchoring it will kind of not go too far we won't get so lost so it kind of there is this idea of anchoring but within that anchoring there is a little movement so that's why i like to use this word anchoring in terms of the concentration itself if we want to use that term, I think we have to look that often in uh, meditation, we can look at what I would call exclusive concentration and inclusive concentration. So sometimes some techniques are telling us, you know, you push away everything, the thought, anything, you just concentrate on the breath, on the body, and everything else must be pushed away, and that's what I would call exclusive concentration. And at one level, that method can be efficacious. But I'm not sure that this method can be so ideal for daily life. Because in daily life, you have many interruptions, many different things happening. And that's why, personally, I like to look more at um, concentration in terms of inclusive concentration. So you anchor on the breath, in the sound, or whatever it is, but within this wide open awareness. So there is anchoring, focusing, concentration, at the same time as space. And that's why we talk, as Chris mentioned, foreground and background. So foreground, you have the breath or the body, and in the background, you have everything else. And then it can move. So like, for example, in the walking meditation, you can focus, anchor in the feet, touching the ground. But then meditation in daily life, I think it's also good, and we'll talk more about this on the third day, to work with what we see. So seeing as a focus on meditation. So I see something. And so how can I anchor in that seeing? Seeing a tree, seeing a color, seeing a shape. How can I anchor, just see that encounter? And without being taken away, without going into commenting or proliferating or whatever it might be. And then, you know, you see, you walk, you see something, then it disappears, you see something else, then it disappears. And then you can have, a moving object, which is more what happens often in daily life. So I think it's useful to have very anchoring object like the breath. But it's also interesting to look at the focusing in terms of different focus. And still within that, there can be this anchoring. There can be this focusing. There can be this concentration. So in a way, there are different ways to concentrate. Like concentrating on the breath is a little from concentrating on the sound. I'll talk more about this. It's a much wide open concentration. So we'll talk more about this tomorrow. So then looking at what is a function. So if we take these two terms, the term of samatha concentration, Vipassana, looking deeply, experiential inquiry, insight. Each term, 
we can look in two different ways, looking at the cultivation of it, the cultivation of focusing, the cultivation of anchoring, the cultivation of concentration. But sometimes it's also refer to the effect of that, which then is a calm, is a quietness, is a groundedness, is a spaciousness. So when we talk of those terms, are we referring to the cultivation, are we referring to the effect? And so when we sit in meditation, are we trying to anchor or are we trying to have a certain effect? Because I think we move between the two. So let's say you, you start with anchoring on the breath, anchoring in the body, and you do this for five minutes, and then you might think, but now I need to be calm. You know, this needs to work. So we move from, you know, we're cultivating to kind of trying to, what is the effect of that cultivation? I mean, there might be a little effect, but generally the effect is more seen over time. So looking a little at that two aspects, concentration as cultivating something and concentration as calm, which was be the effect of that concentration. So kind of also looking at these two aspects. So how does the concentration the anchoring works? And personally, I feel it kind of does, when we do that, when we use that element of the meditation, four things are actually working together. Four things are happening. So the first thing that you keep her hearing and that you must be keeping doing is coming back. So that's the first thing. We try to be aware of the breath, of the body, and then we become distracted by this, that, or another. And then with the intention, we come back. We come back to the breath, we come back to the body. So, and this is basically what it's about. The meditation is very much about that. Often I have the impression people think the thing is to really be with the breath all the time. Personally, I think it's actually the, <laughs> the thing is more about coming back. Because I think it's very hard to kind of, you know, have a, what I would call a 100% focus. I think it's not, we're not totally wired that way. You can have a very strong focus by thinking in very specific circumstances. So meditation in daily life, so one of the things is to come back. This is really the main thing about anchoring, about concentrating mm -hmm. is just that. You sit on your cushion, you are with the breath a bit, you come back to the breath. You stay with the breath a bit, and then you come back to the breath. But each time you do that, you do something quite, you might think, but, you know, I mean, what you often look more at is the fact that you go away. Often that's what I hear, but I have all this thought. So you're kind of looking more at the fact that I go away. What personally I'm looking more at the fact is that you come back. And then by coming back, of course, you will go away again. But every time you come back, at some point. And each time you come back, different things happen. The first thing is that you are not feeding, for example, mental habits. 
if you have a tendency to think that way, to have certain storyline and everything, you go a bit into it, and then you come back. You go a bit into it, and then you come back. So you don't feed it. Then you also dissolve the power of it by just repeatedly coming back. Because in a way, you become slightly less invested in, I must think this, this is so important, even if I have thought this a thousand times before. You know, this is kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah. I can think this, or I can be with the breath. So you start to have a little more leeway. Oh yeah, I can go there, I can come back. So then it starts to have, you don't feed it, it starts to have less power. And then, what is very interesting is that you come back to the breath, or to the body, or to the sound, but at the same time, you come back to the whole experience. And I think this is one of the main things, the main power of that focusing is coming back to the whole thing. Because a lot of the time we lost in just a small fragment of our history, of our experience in a thought, in a feeling, in a sensation, in a plan, in whatever it is, generally it's quite a small part, which is useful at time, but it's also quite useful to be with the whole thing, this whole experience, me in this environment, so that we can really see what am I dealing with here? How can I creatively engage with this here? Instead of dealing more with the commenting, the abstracting about it, instead of the different components experientially of it. That's a third thing that the concentration does. And the fourth thing that it does is that it brings us back actually to the creative functioning. So we're really not trying to stop the thought. We're not trying to stop thinking. But we are actually trying to help the thinking process, feeling process, sensing process, relating process to its creative functioning. So, for example, let me look at some mental habits we might have. So one of um, the more pleasant ones, one that I had a long time, because when I was, uh, I used to be a Buddhist nun, in a Zen nun in Korea. And so in Korea, I had lots of opportunity to meditate. Uh, we were sitting in meditation 10 hours a day, six months of the time, so six months of the year. So lots of meditation. And that was a fantastic opportunity for me to daydream. <laughs> and that was my, at the beginning, my favorite activity. And it took me some time to realize I was daydreaming because it was so entertaining. <laughs> so daydreaming is really kind of, you know, very favorite activity. And then what is interesting, what took me some time creatively engaged with that habit, was actually to start to see first that, oh, I am daydreaming. That's what's going on here. Then to see the different shape of the daydreaming, you know, one of the ones uh, was, uh, you know, that I wanted to become a kung fu mistress and then I would have all kind of adventure. Me was not really into exercise, you know. 
And so, and then until I went, you know, and tried to do a little kung fu for an hour, and then I realized this is not for me. That one went. <laughs> but so you have this kind of, you know, fantasy. You kind of daydream. So that was a thing, kind of seeing what's a story about. What am I daydreaming about? And then the next thing was to actually see how it started. What I would call nearly the taste of that type of thought. And I realized that it was really seductive. It was a suddenly, you know, I, I am, you know, with, in Korea you do questioning. I was with the questioning and then suddenly, they were, mm. it's like suddenly I see, you know, chocolate cake or I don't know. Mm. And then I realized that it started like this, mm, started with these words. If I had, if I was, and then off I would go in this wonderful, wonderful. <coughs> and so <coughs> I think it's important to see that the anchoring is not just about, you know, oh, I must not think that. But it's just in that anchoring there is also the connection with the vipassana, which is this seeing, this looking deeply. And I'll talk more about that. And that's an important part of the practice. So one might do daydreaming. So just, oh, daydreaming. Mm. Come back to the breath. Or you might do, I know that favorite activity, but that's a little unpleasant, is ruminating. So you are fine here. As far as I know, nobody is doing anything to you. And then suddenly you remember something from the past. Somebody said something or did something. Oh, no, really, they did this. You know, oh, really, I mean, you know, that was terrible, terrible, terrible. How could they do this? How could they? And so you bring, you know, this pain from the past now. And generally you jump in the future. You know, and if I see them ever again, I am going to say this. And then you plot revenge which is a very compassionate activity <laughs> on the cushion. And in a way, to see that, to kind of see, oh, one moment I was relatively okay, the next moment suddenly I seem to be stuck in the past, and then I kind of try to rearrange the past a little bit too often, when actually this is something we can't do. We can't rearrange the past. We can learn from it. But we can't rejig it. And then generally we bypass the present and the present just to watch the breath, the body. And then the future, you generally have all kind of scenario when you're going to get them. But generally they won't say what you thought they would say so that you can say so it, you know, <laughs> generally, you know. So it seems possibly maybe the best thing to do is to be here to cultivate awareness now. So in due time, if I meet the person, then in that moment, can I creatively engage? Then you might have uh, what I would call negative fantasizing, when you know somebody might look at you funny and then you create a whole thing around it when actually they just had the sun in the eyes. You know, here it's, you know, it's, I mean, here you can, uh, this is, you're in silence, but you can still look at each other, you can still smile at each other. But, you know, not everybody might smile at the right time, you know. 
they might, who knows? So you'd be, why didn't they smile to me? You know, do I look funny? There's some problem. So you might make a whole thing about somebody that you know they don't like you or whatever it might be. When actually, who knows? They were deep in their meditation or deep in their daydreaming or whatever it was, and it had nothing to do with you. So it's funny how often shh, we can, you know, how often a little feeling of fear, a little feeling of feeling a little uncomfortable. And just, in a way, noticing that, just, you know, being aware of that. And then coming back. Because in a way, the daydreaming, come back, the creative functioning is imagining. The ruminating, the creative functioning, is reflecting. The fantasizing again, back to imagining. So I think it's to see that we have lots of creative functioning in terms of the feeling, in terms of the thought, in terms of uh, different things. And that becomes generally habituated, and often sometimes negatively habituated. And so I would see part of the concentration, the anchoring, as helping us to come back to the creative functioning. So that then we become more free. If I want to think, imagine, reflect, I can do that. And then when it's enough, I can leave it. And so that's also what often happens in meditation on a retreat. Suddenly you can have a wonderful idea. You can, oh, yeah. And that you can follow it a little bit with that. Oh, yeah, you see something you've not seen before. But at some point, suddenly the, the brightness goes and then you repeat it. And then you might just want to come back to the breath, to the body, to the sounds. So they can be thought, and then we can, you know, creatively engage with thought. And part of that is that anchoring. So I would say the anchoring, the concentration, the focusing is helping us to do all these different things. And in through that, to become more calm, more grounded, but also a little more spacious. So that the thought can appear, but within more spaciousness, instead of being really sticky in a way. Then you have the other aspect. And the other aspect is vipassana, which means literally looking deeply. Vipassana, looking deeply. You could also look at it in terms of experiential inquiry. So going inside the experience. But often it's also translated as insight. And again, the cultivation is a looking deeply. The effect is having an insight or seeing something, seeing something clearly. So there, with the, that aspect, is kind of using the brightness of the mind. I think it's very important to see in meditation we try to use the brightness of the body-mind, in a way, the mind-body complex. And so one way to cultivate this, which is very easy and which we can easily do in daily life, and which can be very interesting, is through being aware of change, being aware of impermanence. And why that? And what is interesting with that, and this is not like a kind of a 
philosophic or philosophical or kind of scientific or analysis of things of that nature. It's not commenting on something, but it's more trying to be in the experience of change, trying to experientially really know things change. Because this is a little trying to dissolve the tendency we have to permanentize. Possibly today, I hope not, but possibly some of you were sleepy, some of you had lots of thought, or some of you had some uh, uncomfortable sensation in the body, some pain. And you might have thought, oh, I have so many thoughts today, if I have as many thoughts the whole week, this is going to be terrible. I have this much pain, I'm going to have more and more pain. So we have a tendency to, because something, we experience something, it's going to be like that the whole time. We have a tendency to expand. It's always like this. It will never change. And that's why, in, in terms of the day-to-day -day experience, it's very interesting to just be aware. The thought changes, the states changes, the mood changes, the sensation changes. I mean, the weather changed. I mean, yesterday I went out in the early afternoon and it was like blistering wind. It was amazing. But I have no idea, is it going to last or not? And then it did not last, and then it rained, and then that did not last, and then something else happened. But we can think, oh, it's such a strong tendency, it's going to last. Such a strong tendency. And because of that, then it can lead to a lot of um, anxiety, to a lot of kind of fear in a way. You know, if it's like this now and then, I'm not saying that something don't last, but not all things last to the same degree all the time. Because things change in a way in two different ways. One way they change is by arising, staying a while, and passing away. So they come and they go. And this you can notice in terms of the meditation with an itch. So let's say you have an itch here. You sit there, the breath, the breath. Then itch. So itchy. I mean, it's so itchy you feel it's going to itch forever. Because it's so intense. And I think why we think it's going to last is because of the intensity. We think it's so there. This is really, you know, how can this so there thing can go? So generally we scratch or whatever, but here you don't, you say, okay. And you go inside it. And if you go inside it, you can notice the second way things change is that they change within themselves. They're not fixed and solid, they change. So you go inside the heat, you stay there, you stay there. And a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, it goes. And it's so gone. And in a way, what we're trying to suggest is that you experience that. That it was so there, and now it's so gone. Of at one point you might have been, I mean, this, personally, I would say this morning, when, uh, Chris was giving his instruction. 
I felt so sleepy. So I was sitting there trying to kind of not fall asleep. I was like, oh, trying, you know, I was kind of, you know, I was really sleepy. So I was trying not to yawn and everything and everything. And in a way, I was curious. You know, I feel very sleepy now. What's going to happen next? Instead of thinking, oh, you know, if I'm sleepy like this all the time, you know, da da da, da I just thought, I just thought, oh, I really feel sleepy here. Let's try to keep awake because uh, we're in front of everybody and, <laughs> and he's giving the talk. The poor thing, if I nod off. And then I just observed. And then at some point it went. It went by itself. I did not really have to do anything. At some point it just, oh, yeah, now I feel fine. And I did not feel it again through the day when sometimes I might feel again sleepy after lunch. So <clears throat> something comes, and to me this is for meditation in daily life. This is really what something I would really recommend as an easy practice to do, is if you feel something, if you experience something, the first thing to do is to ask, how long is this going to last? And going inside it. Once I was with um, my husband, and we had a little, you know, you are in the car, you're trying to park, and it's problematic. And then, you know, one says something, and you feel, you know. Like. So he said something. And I could have said something, but I thought, you know. So I felt a little like, mm. And I thought, Staying just with that little funny, slightly unpleasant sensation, I thought, how long is this going to last? So I just went to the sensation, did not do anything with it. I did not try to push it away. I just thought, how long is this going to last? It lasted two lights. So we stopped at one red light, stopped at another red light, and then it was gone. It was really gone. Another time, I was uh, at a little kind of, you know, you are in a shop and you do something and they look at you funny and you did not understand. It happens to me time to time, this kind of thing. And then you think, you know, kind of a little stupid, a little, you know, embarrassed. And, <gasps> and so this happened to me once at a garden center. And so I felt, you know. And then I observed, again, how long is this going to last? Because generally you think, I'll never go to that shop again, and you know. <laughs> So I thought, okay. And I could see the feeling itself <coughs> stayed for about an hour and a bit. Then the feeling went, but as soon as I had the thought of the episode, then the feeling came back. Then another hour passed, and then even if I brought the episode, the feeling was not there. So to me, this is this vipassana is exploration. It's kind of, how is this, what is going on here? How is this lasting, changing, moving? So it's kind of really, kind of, what I call creatively engaging with the experience, going inside the experience, seeing is a change, it comes and it goes, also is a change within itself that the thing actually is not fixed and solid, but it changes within itself, or it comes and it goes 
And so trying to be as close as we can in a way to that, to, the, to how things change. So this is in a way what the experiential inquiry is about. I mean, another part of the experiential inquiry is, of course, about conditionality. But that, I think, in terms of sitting in meditation, can get a little abstract. So that's why often I would not so much recommend it on terms of being sitting on the retreat, on the cushion, but more than use uh, impermanence to really be aware of change. But in terms of meditation in daily life, I think it's really interesting to look at the different, at the conditions. Because back to this, the impermanence and the conditionality are very related. And then how we can use the mindfulness that we develop and also this uh, looking deeply, this experiential inquiry in meditation but also in daily life, is looking at the different level of what we experience. Because often we have a tendency to kind of uh, relate to things quite intensely, they intense. Or we only relate to them when they intense. And personally, I think what I found over time with developing the creative mindfulness in meditation is that actually they are different manifestation level of these different habits we've had. Like let's say mental habits or it'd be emotional habits. And I would say there are three levels. You have the light, the habitual, and the intense. And I would say the condition for each are quite different. And the way you can creatively engage is different too. And so not to think to do exactly the same thing with all. So first we have the light. And this, you see, you could be sitting in meditation and you could have very light thinking. And I think this is, you know, very natural occurrence of the brain working. You hear a little sound, hmm, that's a radiator, hmm. Or you have a little thought of this, a little memory of that. But they're very light. They're not very sticky. So you see them, and you come back. You know, and so just, oh, to see that. This is a light thought. You don't need to have a bazooka. You know, it's, it's just a little light thought. It's just, you know, it, it indicates that your brain is functioning, which I think is not a bad thing. <laughs> so, you have a sort of this, a sort of that. Okay. And you come back from it very easily. <coughs> then you have the next level. And this is more like, you know, habitual train of thought. So you might go into daydreaming or you might go into one of the things often we, we might go into is judging. So you kind of, you know, you might judge yourself or you might judge others. And then when you do the meditation, you might judge the judging of the judging of the judging. <laughs> and, 
And so that's kind of like more habitual. It might be because of family conditioning. It might be because when we have, uh, it feel a little unpleasant, we might go more in the judging mode. It might be for different things. And so it's kind of interesting to say, hmm, like, you know, suddenly I go in this judging mode to myself or others. And I think to see it, I think it's very important there, oh, to kind of in a way recognize it, but not to recognize it, this is terrible, but oh, that judging. Because actually, if you see daydreaming, if you see judging, you see ruminating, it's three very different things, actually. Judging, I think you have to be careful. It's like if you have a difficult friend, you still love them, but you know, you have to be careful because they're a little prickly, and so you have to be a little careful. There is somebody in my family like this. We have to be a little careful around him. Otherwise, it's kind of a little explosive. So we are a little careful. Other people, we are not so careful. We can be more at ease. Judging is like that. Hmm? Judging. As soon as you react to judging, you're going to go into the judging of the judging. So oh, okay, judging. Hmm, my little friend. Okay, gentle, gentle, kindly, kindly. <laughs> And then you can use with the judging. You can actually play a little. You can see how you want to play with it. But you can play with it with uh, the, the experiential inquiry. Like, you know, you might say, I am stupid. Or I am so like this, or they're so like that. And then you could ask, but all the time? Time to time. At times. But often the judging is very categorical. And can we introduce some kind of little movement within it, like a playful movement? So what works for one? That often, you know, like if you make a mistake, I always make mistake. Not necessarily, generally upon certain conditions. And that's where the conditionality comes in. With the daydreaming to see, hmm, kind of there is this pool you know, to fantasize, to go somewhere else. Can I come back now? And I think one of the things we can play with the daydreaming is something we'll introduce later, appreciative joy. Often daydreaming is about what we are missing now. And so kind of like an antidote can be, what is it I can appreciate now? What is it I can enjoy now? With the ruminating, just what I described, noticing, oh, this is a past, oh, this is a future, but maybe trying to be here now. So trying to creatively engage in a different way for each of these different habits. The same way that if we felt sad, or if we felt angry, we felt anxious, this is a little different. We need to creatively engage with this different state in a different way. So recognizing something which happens often, but again, it does not happen all the time. That, I think, is very vital. I am not judging all the time. I am not daydreaming all the time. But upon certain conditions, there can be certain trigger. Then the third one is intense. And I think with that one, I think it's very important to see you don't feel intensity because it's always like this. 
you generally feel intensity because something happened. That I think is vital to see that. <gasps> I feel the soul going round and round and generally something has happened. I mean, once I, I phoned a friend, I said, you know, how are you? Terrible, terrible, everything is terrible all the time, all the time. I said, what happened? Nothing happened, nothing happened. And after 10 minutes, she said, oh yes. Something happened. Yesterday, something happened. I was really hurt. I'm really concerned. Then we could do something about that. We could creatively engage with it. What could she do? And different things. But always, I mean, what can you do about always? Not much. So in a way, to, I think it's important to, to, to see that, that, oh, I am feeling intensely because something happened, generally something shocking. And so in a way, the shock has to reverberate through the system. And it might take a day, a few hours, a week for it, for the thought, the feeling, the sensation, to just be able to be with this. And then the thing there with the intensity is how can we not magnify it? Because we have such tendency, I'll talk more about that later on, to magnify. And I think there, what we can do is, with the meditation, we can use the concentration to create space. But not to use the concentration as a hammer. This is going to get rid of this intensity. Uh-uh. That's not going to work that way. But by, yes, this is intense, but for a few seconds, I can be with the breath. I can be with my feet. I can be with the sound. And so for a few seconds, there is a little space. And through that, you might not magnify. And then you might be with the intensity, and then slowly, slowly, like all things, it's going to change, and also upon different conditions. So that's why the, the, the vipassana, the looking deeply, the experiential inquiry, is very much about, in a way, it's very much helping us to be more clear, but also, I would say, helping us to be more flexible. So we less, this is like this, this is like that. And so, in a way, you have the concentration and the inquiry, you have the anchoring, the looking deeply, so the quietness and the clarity coming together. And then, from that, in a way, you have this creative awareness. And in a way, what we're doing here during this retreat is really developing this creative awareness, this creative mindfulness, so that you can take it into your daily life. The way you listen, the way you talk, the way you work, the way you relate, the way you do the dishes. But not as a mean to become more self-conscious. <gasps> I must do these dishes mindfully. <laughs> this is really not that. But as a mean to be more in the experience. And to remind and you know, to remind ourselves, oh, can I be present to washing the dishes, the water and things? Can I be present to listening to my friend? Can I be present when I walk? Can I also with working? I mean, that's why I was encourage you to bring the creative awareness to how we were. 
Because I think how we work, this is very interesting to, to kind of see the assumption we have at work. How do we work? How do we stress ourselves a little sometime when we work? And so it's kind of bringing, how do I work? How can I creatively engage with working? So I would see what we're doing actually is really to help us to, to develop this creative awareness. And as we live our daily life, in different ways, we'll talk more about this at the end of the week, cultivating that creative awareness, applying it. Because I think here we kind of, in a way, developing the power of the creative awareness. And then in daily life, we kind of applying it. So we kind of, in a way, give it more energy, more application. And I wanted to, to finish with just um, uh, answering the question. There was this uh, question about flow, like, you know, being in the experience. Is it the same as being totally uh, in the action that we do? And my answer would be yes and no. <laughs> because in a way, you hear people who are doing sports really getting into the flow, or you might, you know, be an artist and really be in the flow of creativity. Or you might be a gardener. I am a gardener. And I know I have to be very careful to be in the flow of gardening. Because, yes, you are in the flow of your activity, and that generally induces a pleasant feeling tone. And for myself, it induces this idea, and I could do this, and I could do that, and wouldn't it be wonderful if there was not this and not that, and yes, you know, I can continue to work until 10 o'clock tonight. And I know it's not possible. I know I really have to be careful so that I can enjoy gardening, because I enjoy it, but I have to be very careful because of my physical conditions. So it's nice to have the flow. <laughs> At the same time, what is it leading to? How are we using it? Then there is a question that we, in a way, don't just talk about being in the experience. We talk about being in the experience in a certain way. And so what is important is a caring and careful attitude. Because in a way, you could have a basketball person, uh, player being really in the floor in the competition and really kind of, you know, uh, beating everybody not beating everybody up, but he would be in the flow of activity and he might, you know, you know, and then do his thing. So he's in the flow, but does he have caring and careful attitude as he's in the flow? I'm not sure. <laughs> it depends. So this, one, this is what would be, in a way, we would need to have. Caring and careful. So for example, when I do the gardening, and I really get into all oh, this enjoy gardening and see the result of it and being open and everything, then I need to be caring for myself in terms of how I'm using my body and also to be careful within my limitation. So being in the experience, yeah, but with certain added elements to make it really the meditation we're talking about here that there is this caring attitude, this careful attitude. So that's what I wanted to say. So we have a little time left. Uh, are there any questions or comments?
Yes. Okay, so uh, by conditionality, what I basically mean is that things come upon on conditions. I mean, it's a very simple idea. It's kind of, you know, a little idea of cause and effect. Is that generally when we experience something, it's because of, I would say, it's because of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. One might talk about circumstances, or sometimes there is a technical term of dependent arising. Personally, I use the term condition just to mean that through the, that sometime uh, in meditation, we have the impression that at some point we'll be above conditions. So for example, that if we really kind of, you know, become awakened or if we really practice a lot, then we will become equanimous and then no matter what happens, I'll be fine. <laughs> so often there is this idea that we might reach a state which will be above any inner condition that makes me or outer conditions I encounter. And that can be many different conditions. People, society, weather, I mean, many different things. But to me, what actually the, the great uh, insight the Buddha had was about conditionality. That actually things depend on the external, but meeting this internal, external being. So that, that's why, because often we have such a tendency to fix ourselves. I am like this. I am like that. I am this quality, or I am this uh, physicality, or I am this, con this problem, or etc., etc. When actually we are many, personally I would say, we are, in terms of definition, a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And I would see part of the meditation practice as helping us to discover more and more the conditions that forms us and also how the outer conditions impact us. And then it becomes about creatively engaging with this inner condition meeting the outer conditions. Is that clearer? Yes. So uh, on the, in terms of concentration, I would say you have like a, a spectrum of a way you can concentrate. On this spectrum, you have what I would call a, a narrow, tight concentration on a small focus point. And on this side, I would have like a wide open concentration. So on this side, you could have, for example, what I would noting technique, for example. On that side, you could have just sitting, silent illumination, Dzogchen, gazing technique. 
And personally, I think here, I mean, it can be very efficacious, but for some people, it can be a little tensing, bringing tension. And there, also for some people, it can be very good. For others, it becomes a little vague. But you have this two quite different possibility in terms of uh, concentration, and then a whole spectrum in between. And personally, what I would recommend is actually to have something in the foreground, but within a background. And then sometime, too, we can have you know, different things. So it depends a little what the object is. So let's say you could have in the foreground the breath. So the breath is your anchor, but you anchor in the breath, you're aware of the breath, but within a wide open awareness. So the attention, the focus of attention is on the breath. But as you are a human being with six senses, in Buddhism they include the mind as a sense, it means that although you're focusing on the breath, let's say 70% on the breath, at the same time you're aware of the sound. I presume you might have noticed the sound which I think is of the radiator. Or we might have noticed yesterday morning the rooks. They were great. The rooks were doing their rooky thing. But the fact that you are the rooks, you could actually either be with the breath, so be more aware of the breath, and then the rooks were more in the background, or the rooks could be in the foreground, so you just heard more the rooks, but you still had the breath going on. But then, uh, compared to the noise of the rooks, then the breath was much uh, subtler if it was in the background. And personally, I think what is interesting in terms of uh, meditation in daily life, which we can also uh, play with in uh, walking meditation, is with what we put in the foreground and then what is in the background. And sometimes you can actually have like in the, the breath in the foreground, then you have maybe a little bit of the sound and then everything else is just the thought, the feeling, the sensation passing by, which will be appearing, disappearing, but you don't do much about it. They're like kind of faintly in the background. So I think they, they can be different, kind of quite a, a kind of like, you know, 80% foreground and then the rest is 20%. I think it depends, you know, what, what works for you, how you focus, what helps you to anchor. Does that uh, make sense? Yes. Maybe you can advise something on it? 
So you mean in term of the the meditation, like if you sit in meditation. In daily life. Oh, I think it's easier, actually. Because I think as we sit in meditation, generally there is not much going on. I mean, you see, I think we have to, to, to look at you. Yeah, there is two different worlds here. You have conditioning and conditions. So conditioning for me would be like habits, kind of recognizing the habits. And when we sit in meditation, we can really recognize the habits. But you also have what I would call conditions in terms of inner conditions. And one of the things to notice, for example, is the triggers. So we can become conditioned and have a certain conditioning, but we're not like that all the time. So what is it that suddenly, you know, I'm, you feel fine, suddenly you're on edge or you feel irritable or you know, I used to, uh, many, many years ago, suddenly I would look for somebody to have an argument with. So I would look at generally my husband, because he was the closest. You know, I would say, mm -hmm. and he would say, I have not done anything. And I would think, it's true, he's not done anything. <laughs> so why do I feel irritable? to such a degree that I need to find somebody to be irritated by. And so I kind of went backward to the conditions. And I thought, oh, it's generally when I'm tired. If I get tired, I get easily irritable. So then I became more aware of when I was tired, and then I went to rest, and then I was much nicer. <laughs> So that's what I mean by conditions. It's kind of in a way to see what is a conditioning, like what is it I have a tendency to do. Like I, when I first learned to drive, it was, you could still do this, now you can't, but in those days you could lock the key in the car. So one time I locked the key in the car, called my husband, second time I called him, third time he said, you always lock the key in the car. And I thought, wait a minute, I don't do it like, you know, every second, every day, every minute, you know. Then I thought, what are the conditions? And I realized I did it when I had to park in a tight space and I became all kind of a little stressed. And then after that, whenever I had to park in a tight space, ooh, I went very slowly and very careful and I did not do it anymore. And then he started to do it, but that's another story. <laughs> so in a way, it's kind of like back to the impermanence, noticing I don't do this all the time. So what are the condition? What are the condition? What is the trigger? You know, sometimes it's a word in our mind. Sometimes it's a contact with somebody. I mean, once I was working with somebody and she was saying, ah, it's so painful. I feel guilty all the time. And I questioned, I said, guilty all the time? Could you be aware when you don't feel guilty? So when you feel fine, can you be more aware of that? 
And then she came back, it's true, I am not guilty all the time. Okay, that's one thing. Second thing I said, what are the conditions? What is it that makes you feel guilty? You move from feeling fine to feeling guilty. Then she looked at the condition and she realized actually it was just one person. When she made that one person, psh, she would kind of, you know, that was it. It would trigger that state. So that's what I mean by in, in daily life, you have so many opportunity to, and one of the, we'll talk more about this in, uh, two in, on Friday. I think one of the main conditions of what happens to us, our conditioning, is the feeling tone, the tonality of our experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But we'll spend a day on that, because I think one of the very important practices is to become <coughs> more aware of the feeling tone upon contact through the senses, and how that influences a lot of what happened. That's a kind of interesting condition. But also, <coughs> outer conditions are very important. Somebody we meet, certain situation, I mean, there are many different conditions. 